This is week number two in our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and if you were here last week, then you know that we simply opened with an introduction of the book to look at the uh, background and the author and the date and the overall themes that Paul wrote in this book, and you'll remember that Paul himself claims twice in this book to be the author and that really the church through the ages has had no um, difficulty in, in understanding that and receiving that and accepting that and that Paul wrote this book probably when he was in ministry in the church at Corinth where he stayed for 18 months after he had gone to this church in Thessalonica and from there, he wrote this letter in approximately uh, 50 A.D., somewhere in that time. And if that time is accurate, and he did write it when he was in Corinth, then this is probably the second book in the Scriptures that we have that was penned by Paul the Apostle. The first being the book of Galatians, which was written probably a year or two before this, after he had finished his first missionary journey. And now Paul in writing this book, is on his second missionary journey and has traveled um, back through Galatia, up into Macedonia, being led there by the Spirit of God, being persecuted in the church of Philippi, you remember, being beaten with rods there and thrown into prison and put in stocks with his traveling companion uh, Silas. And then both of them in the middle of the night singing praises to God and the earthquake comes and looses them from the jail and yet they don't flee. And the Philippian jailer comes in with that famous question, what must I do to be saved? And they lead that Philippian jailer and all his household, the scripture says, to true faith in Jesus Christ. And then they um, leave Philippi and they go down to Thessalonica and there, the scriptures say that, uh, we looked at this over in Acts chapter 17, where Paul three times went into the synagogue uh, and really preached, as we would say. The scripture says that he reasoned from the scriptures, meaning that Paul took the Old Testament scriptures and he explained to the Jews and, and the proselytes in that Jewish synagogue that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies showed them clearly, the scripture says, that he showed them that the, the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he did all of that using the Old Testament scriptures. And it, the scripture says that some of them believed, meaning some of those Jews were converted to true faith in Christ Jesus, receiving him as their Messiah. And then it says a great host of the Greeks, the God-fearing Greeks, also believed and joined Paul and Silas. So you had this large crowd of both Gentiles and Jews who began to follow the ministry of Paul and Silas. And because of that, it says that the other Jews who led that synagogue became jealous. And so in a great spiritual awakening, they go, and what do they do? They say, these men... Now, this is something for you. These, these Jewish synagogue leaders use a secular um, example of why these men, Paul and Silas, should be persecuted because they say there's a king other than Caesar. So these Jewish leaders of the synagogue use a secular calling that they're supposed to bow to no other person other than Caesar to accuse Paul and Silas. And to the extent 
that Paul had to flee out of Thessalonica, probably after a couple of months we discussed. Hadn't been there long, but he'd been there long enough to be an example and to receive gifts from the church of Philippi to support his ministry. And Paul flees and he goes down. They take him all the way down to Athens. And he stays in Athens for a short time. And then he goes over to Corinth and calls for um, Silas and Timothy to come and meet him there. And they do just that. And so you have this short ministry that was very fruitful in Thessalonica that resulted in this church being founded. And we'll see during as we go through this book that um, Paul writes back to this church that he actually sends Timothy back to check on their faith. And Timothy comes back to Paul and reports that they're doing well, but there are a couple of issues. And because there are a couple of issues, out of that arises this letter that Paul writes back to give instruction to the church. The main two issues that we see in the church are that they need to abstain from sexual immorality, and we'll get over to that in chapter 4, really in chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul addresses this issue of fearing or um, not well understanding the second coming of Christ, fearing that those who have already died in Christ meaning those who had placed faith in Christ but have now died physically, that they would not get to enjoy eternity with Christ because they had died. So a lack of understanding. So Paul writes to give them clarity about the coming of Christ and the calling of the saints, both those who had died in Christ and those who still remain at his coming and how they'll all be caught up in the air together with him. So those are the issues that this book is about, and that's the setting, and the reason that Paul is writing this book is because Timothy has come back and brought a report about the church. So this morning we'll get into this and actually begin to look at the, the writing of the scriptures that Paul did by starting in the first four verses. So I'll begin this morning by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There the scripture says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So here we have, uh, right here in verse 1, from the very beginning, where Paul, we see this internal evidence that Paul wrote the book. You'll see the same thing over in chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 8, where, maybe it's not 2-8, um, where Paul also claims to be the author, uh, it's 2.18, where he says, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So this is the internal evidence that Paul is the true author of this book. And you'll notice that as Paul always does in his books, he writes about who is with him there in ministry. And he, the scripture here says Sylvanus, which could be also interpreted as Silas as we see in other places in the scripture, and also the young man, Timothy, who they um, 
picked up really on their way as they went through the early regions of Galatia on this missionary journey. Timothy was commended to them by the people of the city. Paul laid hands on him and commissioned him for ministry. And he then joined Paul and Silas. Now let me ask you this. Why would Paul mention the men who are with him? And he does this always in, as he writes letters to the churches. Why would Paul mention the men who are with him when clearly he's the apostle and they're not? Clearly, he's the teacher. He's the one with revelation from God that nobody else had. And yet he mentions the men who are with him, especially this young teenager, this young man, Timothy, who's new to the faith and just beginning into ministry. Why would Paul mention these guys who are with him? It could be because he knows he's going to die before long and he's establishing a, uh, uh, not so much a path of succession, but he, uh, he's affirming you're talking about Paul himself? Yeah, and you know, and Paul is, this is early. After being saved, he went to the church at Antioch and served there for about 10 years. And he went on his first missionary journey, which took less than a year. And now he's on his second one. Hasn't been on it very long. So this is early in the ministry of Paul. And so Paul is, um, you know, at least 10 to 15 years before he's going to be executed. So this is pretty early. So I don't necessarily think that's what's in Paul's mind as he writes about this, that he's you know, soon going to be departed or we're not at that point in his ministry. This is early. This is very early. This is the second book that he writes. Go ahead. Well, he's writing to believers. So he's probably doing it so they'll know who to pray for in their ministry. Okay, that's part of it. And, and remember, these guys were with him in Thessalonica. Matter of fact, when he had to flee, they didn't. They stayed there, and, and they stayed there for uh, not a long time, but at least um, probably a month or so as Paul goes down to Athens. So that's part of it. Why else? Why else would Paul mention the guys who were with him, and not just in this book, but all the time? Go ahead, Rain. I'm just going to say uh, one thing is, is uh, like Timothy, Timothy uh, was Jewish. Right. So when he would go into a, a place, uh, particularly the synagogue, he would go with Timothy uh, into the synagogue uh, together, and, and that would allow him to have more acceptance in that kind of a situation. He took Gentiles uh, in order to uh, talk with the Gentile. The kind of the idea there was he would use these other people, these other um, believers. As an, as an example of true belief or faith, yeah. And, and Timothy was half Jewish, half um, Gentile. His father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew. You know, I, th I think there's more than that. I think this, is, this gives us an insight into Paul's thought about his ministry. I think Paul knew and well understood that he couldn't do ministry by himself. That he needed other people to go with him and to travel with him and to help him. And let me show you why I believe that. And you can see it well over back in chapter 18 of Acts. You remember that Paul had gone to Corinth. He had left Timothy and Silas. And then he calls for them 
to come and be with him in Corinth. And you kind of wonder, well, why would he call for them when they could stay in Thessalonica and help them? And chapter 18 of Acts tells us why he would call for them. And it's subtle, but yet it's there. And this is the way that ministry worked in the life of Paul when other people traveled with him. Look down in chapter 18 and verse 5. Now Paul is there. You can see it in verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is Paul's ministry in the, in the city of Corinth. But then verse 5, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, that would be from Thessalonica and from Philippi, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews and that Jesus was the Christ. So when, Paul, when Silas and Timothy get there, what is Paul then able to do? To devote himself completely to ministry. Now what would he have been doing before they got there? He would have been bivocational, right? He would have been working some, just like he did in Thessalonica, where he says, we proved to be examples working day and night. So he would have been working to support himself so he'd be no burden to anybody in that church. And then he would add to that as much ministry as he could. But he couldn't do all the ministry that he felt like he should be doing because he was having to work to support himself. And then when Paul and when Silas and Timothy get there, he no longer has to do that. Why not? Why not? Because Silas and Timothy go to work and they're able then to earn enough money to support all three of them. So Paul no longer has to work. He can simply do what he's called by God to do, which is full ministry. So this is, this is an example to you, an insight into the ministry of Paul. Why was he always taking guys with him? Not only to train them, certainly that was part of it. Not only so they could help in establishing the church, that was part of it. But here's a bigger part of it, so that they could help him, so that he could be freely devoted to ministry only. Go ahead, David. This is kind of an extension of that, but he also knew that he would be leaving them behind and sending several of them elsewhere, and it added credibility <coughs> in that they had been with him, and, and others who read the letter would know that. That's right. That's right. And, and, and you see this often throughout the Scriptures, that Paul eventually winds up with this significant number of helpers, and he's always sending them. They're the guys who carry his letters to the other churches. They're the guys who go check on the other churches so that Paul will know what the issues are so that he can write the letters to the other churches. They're the ones who bring stuff to him and comfort him while he's in jail and in prison. They bring his cloak and his books and they're carrying messages for him. You know, always you see him sending these guys and these guys helping and strengthening and supporting him. Paul couldn't have done it by himself. And he knew that. And so he includes with him these faithful, godly men. He could, you know, you could have just struck out on his own, right? But he knew that he needed help and support. So you see this, this intimacy between, even here early, Paul and Silas and Timothy. And Timothy is with him through his whole life now. Stays with him for most of his journeys. So Paul understood this, and he understood that about his ministry. And so I think that's one of the reasons 
that you always see him in all his letters, always speaking about who is with him, who's there with him, helping him and strengthening him. And then notice also, as you go on through this, he says, not only mentions the three guys that are with him, but he writes it to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, what's true about these true believers? Having been led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul, the most significant preacher in all of the New Testament ministry, even outstanding beyond um, Peter, the leader of the apostles. What is Paul's perspective about these new converts and these people who've placed faith in Christ? What's his thought as he writes back to them? Because we're going to see more of this as we go through these first opening verses. But I, I want to catch the mindset of Paul and what he thinks about the church. And the way he views ministry and the church. So what's he thinking as he says, he writes to these and he says, The church in Thessalonica in, you notice he says, In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, what's true about these true believers? Say it again. All right, he'll say that down in verse 4, that they were literally chosen by God. What else? That they're genuine and true believers. Why? Why, why would you can't say that? The way he addresses them. Uh-huh. As, as uh, being of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. And you'll notice that uh, even down in verse... Um, Well, I guess it's, uh, yeah, in verse 4 where he says, Knowing brethren beloved by God. Not, not maybe you place faith in Christ. I was only there for a short period of time. And so I'm not sure about your faith. He says, oh, no, no, absolutely. Knowing of your true faith. So Paul is confident about these people. And he knows this, that if anybody's going to grow in God, going to grow in understanding about Christ Jesus, it's only going to happen not because of Paul's ministry, not because Timothy goes back there. None of that really matters. It's because they're rooted in Christ himself. And so Paul's ministry wasn't all about, well, you need me there to help you and teach you and to help you grow. That's not his perspective at all. His perspective is this, that I preach the gospel and the Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, places you in God and in Christ Jesus, and there you stay, and that is your Security, that is your strength, that is your root, that is where you grow, that is what keeps you in your faith, not Paul's ministry. See, Paul understood that he was simply an under-shepherd of Christ, not Christ himself. And so we need to understand that about Paul, because often you see Paul commending his ministry and speaking about his faithfulness. None of that ever comes out of his pride about himself. It comes out of his understanding of the grace of God in his life and in the life of those to whom he taught. This is Paul's perspective about ministry and how it works. Never, never do you see him say, my church or the church that I planted or the church that I founded. You don't see that. You'll see him say occasionally in tenderness, my children in the faith, meaning you came to faith in Christ underneath my ministry, but never does he claim them for himself. You never see that. 
He's always saying that they're God's, not his. Go ahead. I was just going to say, First uh, Corinthians is really good about that. Because yeah. Says, he addresses those people who say, I'm of Cephas, right. or I'm of Apollos. He even says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Because then you would have said, I'm of Paul. And he's like, I don't want any of you. Not because he hated them or anything. He just doesn't want people to say that they're special because they were under the ministry of Paul the Apostle. He understands it's not his ministry. He's just, a, um, he's just been given a mystery that he's to communicate. Always Paul's understanding of, of, of true ministry is that he diminishes as Christ is significant. Even though he says, you see all these things and people accuse Paul of being arrogant and egotistical and focused on himself and that's not it at all. He understood the dispensation of grace that God had given him. But he always, as you see him address the churches, he always says, in Christ Jesus. Knowing that it's not him. But it's that they're in God. And you notice also the next thing that he says here where he says, um, grace to you and peace. Now, I dare say this phrase is in every single opening passage that Paul writes. And you say, well, everyone will look back with me. You say, well, you know, Romans, that's a, uh, a dissertation, a thesis, right, on the gospel and the faithfulness of God to, to give it to all men, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But notice, as he opens even this book, you'll see it down in verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Then turn over to 1 Corinthians. And you'll see the same thing there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And turn to 2 Corinthians. And you'll see it again. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you move on to Galatians. And you'll see it there in verse 1. Grace to you in verse 3, chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in the book that Shane's teaching over in Ephesians, you'll see it again in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on and on and on like this. And even when he gets to the pastoral epistles, look over at 1 Timothy. And you'll see the same thing, with a little added for Timothy because he needed it. And you'll see to Timothy, verse 2, 1 Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. From God our Father. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father. Even to Titus, the next, the next verse, the next book in the scriptures, you'll see it again. Um, in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God our Father. This is a constant theme of Paul. It's the way he opens every single letter that he ever writes that we have recorded in Scripture, and I would dare say the ones that aren't recorded in Scripture probably had the same salutation. Why is it that, God, that Paul is so focused on grace and peace in the life of true believers? What is that all about? 
Why does he open every single letter the same way and say grace to you? Why? Well, we need grace. There's no doubt. Well, they are being persecuted. Think about this with me. They're being persecuted, right? So is the peace that he's talking about here, peace in the sense of anti-war and we're not against you, we're for you, and can't we all just get along and all this other stuff? Well, if, if it is, then Paul is a terrible example of peace in his life, right? I mean, this is the man who just got beaten with rods in Philippi and had to flee for his life down to Athens, and now he's in Corinth writing this letter back saying, peace, peace to you. It's not about getting along with people. Go ahead. It's a type of peace that you know that you've got that relationship with the Lord that no matter what happens, you know whose you are and where you're going to be. Yep, this is peace not with men but with God and peace from God. This is that you were opposed to God and while His enemy, Christ died for you. And now you've been reconciled to God and he, you've, in Christ has become not only your Savior but your friend. This is, this is that reconciliation with God that comes only by how? Grace. By grace. And Paul understands that. Paul understands that apart from grace being dispensed by God Himself, these people would be unbelievers. Apart from God initiating in their life and calling them to Himself, dispensing His grace in their life, they wouldn't know Him. Because there are other people that were in the exact same situation, the exact same setting, the exact same body of teaching who persecuted Paul instead of following him. And why is that? Why is it that some persecuted him and some followed him? It's all about God's choice, God's dispensing grace in their life. It's not because of their wisdom or their particular situation or because they understood and the other guys didn't understand. That's not what it is at all. That's the way we think, right? That's why we think people come to Christ. That's why, uh, why didn't this guy receive the gospel and this one did? It has nothing to do with that, with their situation, their upbringing, their, their conditions. None of that makes any difference. That's not the, the net result of what causes people to place faith in Christ or not. It's all about the grace of God being dispensed in their life. God calling them to Himself and illumining their minds, showing them the truth of who Christ is, and then giving them first the repentance that they need to turn from their sins, and then giving them the faith that they need to place in Christ. None of that comes from within any of those people who actually understand and, and trust Christ as their Savior. It's all by the grace of God. It's not the way at all that we think about it, but it's the way Paul thought about it. It's the way Paul understood. I mean, this is the, the Apostle Paul who Christ appeared to on the Damascus Road, who he took into the desert of Arabia and by a revelation of Christ taught him repeatedly for an extended period of time as we studied back in Galatians. This is the Apostle Paul who was given a special dispensation of the mystery of Christ 
that the Gentiles would be part of the church, that there would be a church, all of this. And yet, beyond all of that, Paul says, only by the grace of God. Not by my preaching, by my revelation, by my teaching, none of that. Paul understands it's by grace. Always. His understanding is clear about his ministry, is it not? He's going to broadly broadcast the gospel to everybody he can talk to about the gospel. But those who place faith in Christ, he knows is only because God pours out his grace in their life. Same is true today. Exact same thing is true today. As you're witnessing the people, some trust Christ, some don't. Some reject, some listen. You know, all these different reactions, all of that, if someone trusts Christ, is by the grace of God. Not by your wisdom or the way you present the gospel or your, you know, your, your trickery or your, anything that you could say that would persuade them. Although God uses men without question, uses men to give the gospel, the scriptures, so that the spirit can call people to God. But it's all by the grace of God. You could, you could, if, if you go to a group of people and God hasn't chosen any of them, you're to be faithful and teach and preach and, and broadcast the gospel, but none will place faith in Christ unless God chooses them and pours out his grace in their life. You understand that, right? I mean, Paul understood that. You know, and, and that's why Paul, when he preached the gospel and men rejected it, not, what does he do? He, he shakes the dust off his feet because he knows it's not about me. And it's not about my ministry. It's about, does God choose these people for his own? So you see a great understanding here as we open up 1 Thessalonians simply about the way that Paul views ministry and how it works and how it worked in his life. And here, I mean, this is early. This is early. You know, no shipwrecks yet. Beaten with rods, yes. Stoned, yes. Once. Dragged outside of the city. But this is still pretty early in his ministry. Significant things have happened. But this is early in his, in his um, ministry travels. So, yes. Um, just a thought. Uh, would just a thought. Yeah, Paul writing to the church, and these are Jewish and Gentile believers. We fall, yeah, we, it's not just them, right? I mean, you have a lot of teaching that you were taught as you grew up, right? That you have to try and dispense because it wasn't good teaching. It was the doctrine of men, not the doctrine of God. And so you have to dispense of these things and change your thinking, right? And let your mind be shaped by the scriptures, not by what you heard people teaching you when you were young. I mean, you have to do that all the time. You see it today as people come out of other religions and place faith in Christ, whether that uh, you know, be Muslim, whether that be Catholic or, or whatever, that their minds have to be shaped by the teaching of Scripture in order for them to worship God in a way that's acceptable in His sight. I mean, and it's not just them, it's us also. 
and how we grab to the world's philosophy, and you've got to dispense of that stuff and think differently. So yeah, I, I do think that, especially in this time, that the Jews, because they got their old teachers constantly badgering them and trying to tear down the reputation of Paul. That's why Paul, in chapter 2, um, commends his ministry to them, because he knows there are people who are attacking him personally, having been one of those Jewish leaders himself, having defected from the faith, as they would say, having trusted Christ and now preaching this strange doctrine. So they're always trying to tear him down. So yeah, I do think that's part of it. The, the, you know, and, and Paul understands better than any of us could where these people are at, especially those Jewish converts, because he was one. I mean, he was the one who was excelling beyond all his contemporaries in Jewish doctrine. And then God revealed the truth to him. So as you go on, look in, but, um, in verse 2, where Paul, again, you notice this uh, plural pronoun, right? Paul never seeing himself as alone in ministry. Almost always, the, the pronouns that are used throughout Paul's letters are plural when he speaks of not only himself, but the guys who were with him, always understanding that he was not a lone ranger. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You know, I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? Pretty clear of what Paul, and you can just see him, right? Paul and Silas and Timothy getting together to pray for the church at Thessalonica. You know, calling men, individual men's names who would come to their mind before God, always praying for them, part of the ministry. I, I question for you. Does it ever come to your mind in your daily prayer time to simply pray for the saints of Faith Community Church? To call individuals by name who you know are struggling or they got an issue in their life instead of always going and trying to help, which is a good thing, do you ever commend them to the Lord and ask for His strength in their life? I can tell you this, that your elders often, often, not often enough, but occasionally, join together to pray for the church. I mean, that's one of our purposes when we get together. And there is no greater joy in the life of an elder than to gather with the other elders and to pray for the body and to call people specifically before the Lord that he might strengthen them, that he might aid them, to thank him for pouring out grace in their life, to thank him for his faithful service through them in strengthening the church. There's no greater joy in the life of an elder than to do that. I can tell you. There, there, there's no thing that causes greater unity and commonality of mind among the elders than praying for the church. It is a time beyond any other by the grace of God of communing with your Lord and with fellow believers with a common purpose and with a common objective of seeing the church strengthened in Christ Jesus. There's nothing like it. There's n I, I, it's indescribable for me to tell you what it does in my heart and in my mind and in the life of my fellow elders. It's just, it's unspeakable. That same thing 
I believe, happens in the life of other believers as they pray for the church with the same common objective. You can't pray for other people to be strengthened and for the issues that people are going through that God would dispense His grace and work in their lives and to strengthen them and to help them to overcome and it not cause there to be unity in your life with those other believers. You know that. If you've ever done that, it just knits you together in a way that is, is only by God. David? Yeah? Uh, I, I would ask the church body if they're, uh, if they're not, if it's not a habit of their daily lives to pray for the elders uh, who God has set in place to lead the body, uh, I would just challenge them to consider what it is that they're praying for Obviously, our own individual pursuit of holiness. But, uh, you know, it ought to be the habit of each one of our lives to lift the elders up before the throne of grace and intercessory prayers on a daily basis because uh, if the enemy can bring down the leader, and that's where they where you would like to start. You're surely the most needy of all. That's absolutely true. <laughs> that I recognize well. That's right. No. It is, and it's and you know, it's not men who appoint elders. It's the spirit who appoints elders in the body. Now there it's confirmed and and done through the hands of men as elders propagate elders, but it's the Spirit who calls elders. And we understand that. And it's not something that we necessarily would always choose. But yet you follow and you do what God has led you to do. And, and you're right. I mean, we, we need to all be praying for one another because we're all in need of the strength of God and the grace of God. Go ahead, David. Romans in chapter 15 talking about bearing one another's burdens yes. called voices of prayer in verse 5 and 6 it says now may the God who authors patience and encouragement grant that you be like minded yep. toward one another that you might with one mind and one voice glorify him and he's making that prayer absolutely the unity you're talking about yep. bearing one another's burdens is spoken of directly yeah absolutely absolutely and that, I love that voice I mean that that, that thought of with one mind and with one, it literally says mouth, that we might praise God. Just a thought. Pray for your elders and your fellow believers often, as Paul does here. We make mention to God always of you, and then we get some insight in, in verse 3, as, okay, well, what does Paul pray for them? And he mentions three specific things that he prays for them. Notice what he says. He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now, these are some of the favorite ways I, I would say that Paul has of describing true faith. Notice what it says. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope, right? 
Now these three abide. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Right? Some of Paul's favorite ways of describing true faith. Now, I ask you a question. He says, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. What's he talking about? What, what is the work of faith? What is the labor of love? What is the steadfastness of hope? What is that in the life of the true believers here that he's writing to? I mean, what's, what's the work of faith? You know, that's where you believe God and you pronounce something and it happens. I mean, what work of faith, labor of love. What's he talking about in the life of these true believers? I think that's part of it, would be serving each other. You know, when I, as I was thinking about this, I mean, how, when, all right, you're sitting there, right? And you go, work of faith, what is that? Well, what do you do when you're trying to study the scriptures and you don't know what a work of faith is? So what do you do? You do what? You, well, you study it, yeah, but how do you do that? What do you do? That's what I do. I mean, you just go and you, you know, get you a good concordance or something, right? And uh, I have a parallel Bible that has the Greek and it has the English, right? So I can read the English and see the words that are in Greek. And then I can go look up the Greek word and what it's meaning. And then you got, you got a good concordance that shows you other places where that same word is used. And I usually look for them in the same place in the same book. Because that's what he's writing about, Right? Well, there's a couple of those in, in this particular instance. Let me show you how this works. I mean, what else are you going to do? How else are you going to know what this means unless someone stands in the pulpit and preaches it to you? And then you really you don't know, right? You just know what somebody else said about it. You've got you to dig these things out for yourself. This is how you do it. You go and you look where this word is used. So let's look at a couple of these and see if they make sense to us. Look down in, um, we're talking about work of, uh, faith and labor of love. Look down in chapter 2 and verse 9. And you'll see what Paul means when he says about work. And this is what Paul means. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what does Paul mean when he says labor and work? What's he talking about? What's, I mean, what's he talking about here? He's talking about work, right? This isn't something spiritual. I mean, it clearly is because you do everything to the glory of God. But he's talking about just you put your hands to the task and you do it. Work and labor. You strive at these things. All right? Look down in chapter 5. Verses 12 and 13. I mean, it's clear what he means there. It's not like it's hard to understand what he's saying. And then he talks about what their perspective of what their elders should be. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So what does Paul mean when he's talking about work and labor in the, in the life of the leaders in the church. What's he talking about? I mean, he's talking about diligent effort. This is that 
It doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. You have to work at things. You have to strive. It takes effort and intensity. All right, now we're all thinking about the work of love, or work of faith that he's talking about, right? The labor of love that he's talking about. So what is Paul talking about when he mentions these things? In the life of these true believers, he says, we, we, we pray for you often. We commend you before the Lord. And the things we pray for you are this thought about their um, labor of love or their work in the faith. What is that? Well, let me show you this. Look over in 2 Corinthians. I mean, 2 Thessalonians. He, he goes on. He comes back to this same thought in 2 Thessalonians. I mean, this is Paul's constant thought about the church and what should be true. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Same thing, right? He's praying for them. Brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. What's he talking about? What's going on in the church when he talks about these works of faith, the steadfastness of hope, this labor of love? What's, what is he talking about that ought to be true in the New Testament church? Well, Mark, Mark whispers to me up here, Faith without works is dead. So what's he talking about in the church? This work of faith, this action, this ministry that goes on in the church. Paul isn't just praying for them and thanking God that they're saved and now they're just sitting there being, you know, dispensed grace and they have all this knowledge and they're just growing in their understanding. Not at all. What does he pray for them? That they'll have labors of love that they'll, be, they'll persevere in their hope, that when things look hopeless, they stay to it. They believe what God has said. That their faith is not just one that they possess, that God gave to them, but they work it out by, by ministering in the body of the believers. This is what Paul is always thinking about when he writes to the churches, is that they're not just passive and sitting there, but they're responding to the gospel by works of faith, by labors of love, by steadfastness of hope. They're not passive at all. They're very active. That's, what's going, that's what he prays for them. This is his focus about ministry. I mean, it's his focus about his own ministry. I'm not going to be a burden to any of you, so I'm going to work with my own hands. And thank God for Timothy and for Silas who come and relieve me of having to do that so I can now minister day and night. And preach the gospel to all of you. And be fully devoted to ministry. See, this is, this is, there's no slackness in the Apostle Paul. Or in his view of what should be true about true believers. This is the work that you do as a true believer. The question is, are we? Right? Are we? Are we this kind of church? Would Paul say, um, I commend you to God. And we speak proudly about you. Because of your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. 
See, that's the question, right? That's what that brings about. What would Paul say about Faith Community Church and each one of us? Would he say, would he commend us to God? Or would we be like the Corinthians who have factions and divisions and all kinds of immorality and major problems going on and, and bad doctrine and uh, just all these things that he's trying to correct? Or would we be a church like the Thessalonians who he commends? And who he gives words of affirmation to. That's, that's, the, that's the real question that comes out of this. What he's writing here. So, And you see this is Paul's constant theme. But in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. We go to many other places. Where he says that your faith needs to put skin on. And show itself. That faith that doesn't do that. That isn't active. And isn't involved in ministry. Is no faith at all. It's false faith. It's not true. True faith responds to the grace that's been dispensed by ministering among the saints, by praying for them and laboring in that prayer, by doing works of kindness and love, by you know, um, keeping young kids when young kids need to be caught, by teaching a Bible study class because even children need to hear the gospel. You know, these things that have to be done in the church for the church to flourish and to grow. That's what he's talking about. Is it happening? Or are you just passive and you've received grace and you just sit back? That's the question. That's what he's talking about here in this passage. That's, where, that's Paul's focus. This is the way Paul views ministry. This is the way he understands it. Next week we'll get down into verse 4 where he has that, I love the way he says it, knowing this, I know this is true among you because God chose you. That's why it's true in your life. That's the only reason it would be true in our lives. It's because God chose us. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. Any question you got? Final comment you want to make? Something you want to say? Go ahead, John. MacArthur says, if there's no fruit, there's no root. <laughs> because what's on the inside works its way out. Yeah. So according uh, MacArthur who? <laughs> General. <laughs> General MacArthur. <laughs> New book about John MacArthur's life. You ought to read it. It's his biography. You'll know where some of that comes from. Without, without, say that again. No fruit, no root, right? It does. It does. It should. Thanks for your time.